Heavenly Father, we come to you and we come now to the subject which warms and delights our hearts. He who is our soul's love, he who is our life, our truth, our way, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, our Lord Jesus Christ, the central person of Scripture, the one on whom your plan of the ages rests and hinges. You, Father, planned all things so that they would be headed up under the Lordship and the headship of Christ. On Him, history pivots. And so we delight to come to Him today. It is the very bread of our soul to learn of Him and feed on Him. The Holy Spirit delights to glorify Him and to shine the light on Him. We pray that He will do that blessed ministry today, that you'll give help to me as I seek to lift up the person of Christ in clarity and glory from your Word. Help to all who hear. Help to those who know you to be deepened in their love for Him, their ardor for Him, their passion to live for Him and lift Him up. And those who don't know Him to see just how glorious He is and how much they need Him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The real Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, is also, we'll fill that in in a moment. Uh, last sermon we noted that there are many Jesuses. There always have been, there always will be. Many come and bring Jesuses of their own invention. Many different descriptions, many different agendas. But only one Jesus is real, only one Jesus is true, only one Jesus lives and saves. And that's the Jesus of whom we learn in Scripture. So in our last sermon, we learned one mighty truth about the Lord Jesus, and that is, that is that He is fully God, which is to say, from all eternity, God the Son has existed uh, as deity, as God the Son, begotten of the Father before the ages, not created, not made, identical with God as to His essence, distinct from the Father and the Spirit as to His person, the one and only God. And so the Lord Jesus uh, does not, cannot cease to be God. If, if there's any thought in your mind that something changed uh, on that Christmas morning, can't be because everything that is true of God is true of Jesus Christ. Is God immutable? then Jesus in his godhood is immutable and righteous and just, all-knowing, perfect, omnipotent, omnipresent. But we also learn this week that Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, is also fully man. That's what goes in those blanks. He is fully God and he is fully man, which makes Jesus unique in all creation because he is one person with two natures. And as I'll say from a number of different angles in this sermon, he's not half God and half man. He's not a mixture of God and man. He doesn't have half a divine nature and half a human nature to combine in one nature. He has two natures. As to his humanity, he is purely man. As to his deity, he is purely God. But he is one person. How can that be? Well, we'll learn what we can about it from Scripture today. But this is the real Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Jesus who can save. This is the Jesus who is true. <clears throat> so first in approaching this, the truth of Jesus, the truth of his humanity, let's look together at the prophetical background to the incarnation. 
And incarnation, in case you're not familiar with that word, simply means infleshing. Uh, in flesh, that's a, a, a Latin derivation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, the apostle says in John 1.14. That's the incarnation. <clears throat> so there is a prophetical background to the incarnation. The Bible doesn't begin with Christmas. The Bible begins by laying the background to Christmas, and we can only understand Christmas if we understand that background. So this takes us to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 uh, for the start. So in Genesis 1, God has created all things. He's created man and woman in his image and given uh, them the charge to rule over the world in his name, under him as the image of God. In chapter 2, we have a close-up on the formation of Adam and his helper Eve. And Adam is given one negative rule, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day you eat of it, you will surely die, he's told. Genesis 3, what do we see? But the serpent and Eve at that tree, the one tree they have no business being at. And that's where Eve is, hearing words from the serpent who contradicts God, who slanders his character, who wheedles his way into her understanding, flatters her, tempts her, and she falls for it, and Adam follows. He partakes of the fruit, sins against God, instantly dies spiritually, and then God comes. And we see the couple hiding from God, the most pathetic scene in the entire Scripture, hiding from the Creator behind a bush He created. And God begins with the man, speaks to him. He passes the buck to the woman, speaks to her. She kind of passes the buck to the serpent. So God begins with the serpent, and it's to the serpent he speaks in Genesis 3.15. If you haven't turned there, I'd encourage you to. Genesis 3.15. God says to the woman, uh, sorry, God says to the serpent, and I will put enmity, that is hatred, hostility, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, not she, shall bruise you, not your seed, on the head. So the final conflict is not between the serpent and the woman. It's not between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. It's between the serpent and the woman's seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Or I translate it, he shall strike you on the head, you will strike him on the heel. So what do we learn here about this champion of mankind? We learn that he will be the seed of the woman. Now that takes some looking at and some thinking about. What is he, first of all, let me ask an answer. What is he? He's a seed. Your seed, her seed, God says to the serpent. Now, in agriculture, that's where the word is often found, the Hebrew word zerah, seed. In agriculture, you, you bring the seed to the ground and up comes a plant. In family, the husband brings seed to the woman and up comes a family, up comes children. Now, conscious of my audience of many ages, I put it that delicately. That's what the seed is in human relations. The seed in human relations is what the husband brings to his wife and out come children. So now to speak of her seed then, well, that's a little odd, isn't it? When you realize that, when you think about that, if, if God had said your seed and his seed, well, 
nobody would raise an eyebrow. I mean, that just makes sense. That's what the man brings. Or your seed and their seed, speaking of the children as the product of the man and the woman. But God doesn't say that. He uses this odd expression. I say it's an odd expression. It never occurs exactly like this again in Scripture. The word seed occurs over and over and over again, but never her seed. So I'm not making something out of nothing. I'm making something out of something. Her seed is an odd expression. It makes you raise your eyebrow. It's an odd expression. He is the seed uniquely, not of the man, God doesn't say, but the seed of the woman. That's what he is, the seed of the woman. Now, who is the seed of the woman who will defeat mankind's enemy? Now, this is something that we need to note carefully here. He will be human. How do we know he will be human? He'll be the seed of the woman. She will give birth to him. He will have a human mother. So he's going to be a human being. Now, if you'd never read the Bible at this point, you might have imagined all sorts of futures. Uh, after the fall, you might have imagined that God would simply judge the race. There would be no hope. You might imagine that God himself might bring judgment in some way or salvation in some way. But that's not what Yahweh says. What Yahweh says is that deliverance will come from a human being, one who will be seed of the woman. And so he will be a human being who will defeat this non-human enemy, the serpent, who is the tool of Satan, we learn later. So he will be a human being, but at the same time, we need to remember what we were just talking about. He's going to be a remarkable human being because he's the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. So his conception and birth is going to be something unusual, something unique. It's going to be miraculous because that's not how babies happen. They don't happen by a woman alone, by a mother alone. But in this case, he will just have a mother. He'll be a seed of the woman. So he, this human being, who will have a remarkable conception, will defeat the enemy and we can take as at least a possibility that he will die in the doing. I mean, if this is a venomous serpent, <clears throat> he strikes the seed's heel. At the same time, the, the uh, seed in this same encounter crushes his head. So somehow, this uniquely born human being, born of a woman, will by his death defeat the enemy of mankind. Well, that's an awful lot to find in just the third chapter of the Bible, isn't it? In Genesis chapter 3. And yet that frames everything that we need to understand about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we're going to fast forward hundreds and hundreds of years to Isaiah 7.14. Turn there, obviously, please. <clears throat> Isaiah 7.14, letter B. As you read through the Bible, you see seed, seed, seed. It is an important plot line. Abram is going to have a seed who is going to possess the gate of his enemies. This seed in, in him will be, will all the families of the earth be blessed. We read a lot about the seed. But then we encounter something in Isaiah 7.14 that just has to bring Genesis 3 right to mind. Isaiah 7.14, written around 700 B.C., just to give it an easy niche in history for us. <clears throat> this is a case where a wicked king has refused God's offer to pick a sign. He won't do it. And so we read in verse 14, the prophet says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. God is going to pick a sign. 
Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Well, here is a sign that the Lord has picked. So it's not going to be a small thing that God picks. It's going to be a large thing. In fact, it's going to be an unprecedented thing. A virgin who has had no relations with a man is going to give birth to a son. Well, obviously, what is she going to bear? She's not going to bear a toaster oven or a stereo. She's going to bear a human child. She's going to have a son. He has, he has a mother. He has a family line. He's born to the house of David. He's got an ancestry. I mean, he's a human being like all of us. Well, except in this one way. His mother is a virgin. It's a virgin conception. But he is a human being. And as a human being, though, born of a virgin, he's not just human. To say that he's human says the absolute truth, but it doesn't say all the truth. We learn more about what's hinted at in Genesis 3 when we find that indeed he is the seed of the woman because his mother was a virgin. No man is involved in his conception. He's the seed of the woman, just as we read in Genesis 3. But even more, what's his name going to be? Well, his name is going to be, uh, if I can say it in the, in the Hebrew way, Immanuel. Now that is very simply, Immanu, with us, El, God. God with us. That's his name. Now, it's true this name could be a lovely thought. It could be a hope. I mean, a lot of simple human beings had glorious names. Isaiah's name, Yeshayahu, means Yahweh saves. Uh, nothing special about Isaiah. It's an expression of the hope of his parents. So maybe, maybe this child's called Emmanuel because of the hope that God will be with us. Oh, but but that doesn't tell the whole story. We looked at it in the last sermon. Where did we look? We looked at Isaiah 9, 6, about this same child. And what did we see that this same child would be called in Isaiah 9, 6? Mighty God. Here he's Emmanuel, God with us. There he is, El. You hear that same word, El, God. Gibor, mighty one. Mighty God. So it's not just a name, it's a description of who he is. It's not just a hope about the help of God, it's a statement about the presence of God in this child. Which is not altogether surprising because as I say, he has a human mother, we know who she is, but who is his father? Well, his father is God. He is himself both human and mighty God. So all of the elements of Genesis 13 are here but they're given greater detail. We know more about them. Indeed, he'll be the seed of the woman with a virgin for a mother. And indeed, he will be human and not just human. He will be God with us. He will be God and he will be man. Now, in the last sermon, we focused on the truth of his godhood. That if you're not talking about one who is fully God, you're not talking about Jesus Christ. But here we focus on the equally important truth that if you're not talking about a genuine human being, you're also not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was genuine God and genuine human. So now, Roman numeral two, we're going to fast forward 700 years and look in beginning at the historical foreground of the incarnation. See, because this is a, this is a remarkable thing about Christian faith, it's a historical faith. 
I don't mean just that it's an old faith. What I mean is it's rooted in historical events. It's not just ideas and gas. It's not just people talking, which basically describes about every other religion, just people talking. But this is about things that actually happened on this planet in our timeline. And at one point in our timeline, before the invention of the internet and after the invention of the wheel, God became a man. And this is the description of those historical events. So my faith doesn't rest on just gassy thoughts of some guy thinking in a desert. It finds expression in things that actually happened in the same world I live in. So let's look at the fact of it first, letter A, the fact of it. And it is announced in Luke 1, 26 through 35. So turn there, please. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 35. And let's see how this takes the same elements we've been seeing and brings them forward. So, we read in Luke 1.26, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, actual city in an actual region, to a virgin. Oh, we just read about the virgin in Isaiah 7. What about this virgin? She was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Well, that takes us right back to Isaiah 7 also, because this miracle was given and promised to the house of David. And in Isaiah 9, the same child would sit on the throne of David, and the government would be on his shoulders. And so this takes us right back there, only this is, that was a prophecy. That was a prediction of things to come. This is something that's about to happen like now, like in a few minutes from what we read here. So this virgin is sent, I'm sorry, this angel is sent to this virgin uh, betrothed to a man of the house of David, and she also was of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, uh, favored one, or one of grace, one who's received grace. The Lord is with you. Wow, now where does your mind go there? The Lord is with you. Emmanuel. Yes, indeed, God really is about to be with her in her son. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was, I dare say. (laughs) And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor, grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, he tells this virgin, you will conceive this virgin, young teenager, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall not call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, well, of course, this sort of thing happens all the time, right? This is something I never tire of pointing out to you. People say, oh yeah, the Bible's full of all sorts of fables. People thought these things happen all the time. Have you read the Bible? That this is not her reaction. And when she tells Joseph, it's not his reaction either. He doesn't say, oh yeah, virgin birth happens all the time. He says, no, I know how births happen and, you know, I'm not buying this. So anyway, I digress. Now I regress. Uh, How will this be since I'm a virgin, she says. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, A, the Holy Child her child, so he's a human being, shall be called B, the Son of God. So her child will be God, God the Son. 
a human from her nature, God from the nature of the Father. Divine, human, but the same person. One person, not two persons. So, see, with our background then, some details stand out fresh. This, this mother Mary is a daughter of David, just as Isaiah predicted, and Jeremiah and others predict that that's the house from which Messiah will come. She's a virgin, as Genesis 3 hinted. This is the seed of the woman, not of a man. And the child she would bear would be human. She is a granddaughter of David, so he will be of the tribe. He'll have an ancestry. He'll have a family line, just like any human being. Ten hands, ten fingers, ten toes, he'll be a human being. But at the same time, he will be divine, and he will be one person. He will have a human nature, he'll have a divine nature, but he will be one person, one son. He won't have two names, he'll have the one name, Jesus. So, just a word here before we move on. Look at the, the relationship of the Old and the New Testaments. If you get around, you will hear some people say, well, yes, the, the apostles and all, they look at the Old Testament and they read back into the Old Testament things that happen in the New Testament. So back in the, you know, the people who wrote these things and heard these things, they never would have thought anything like this. It wasn't really in the text. They put it in the text. But what I hope I've shown you is that's not true. It's in the text. And then when the events happen, the signif- full significance comes out. But this is what Genesis 3 pointed to in its words, and it's what Isaiah 7 pointed to in its words. And if we had the time, we could look at a lot of other verses that do the exact same thing. The Old Testament sets the outline of the things God is going to do in His redemptive plan, and then the New Testament shows the fulfillment of those things that the Old Testament points to. And it's just of a piece. It's not one thing and then another thing cramming an alien meaning into it, you see. It's one book that tells one story. So, uh, the fact is announced in Luke chapter 1, and very simply, the fact is accomplished in Luke chapter 2. We'll just look at two, uh, Luke 2.7. You're already there. Just turn the page, look at Luke 2.7, what do we read? Just like the angel said, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths. Well, you don't wrap a ghost in cloths, do you? You don't wrap an idea in, 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 you don't put a diaper on an idea. Some maybe could use it, but again, I digress. But you diaper a human baby, and that's what she does because that's what she had. She had a human baby. She laid him in the feeding trough, the manger, because there is no place for them in the guest room. A normal human birth to a son, and we know that her son is also the son of the Most High. Two natures, one person. Now, we saw the fact announced and accomplished. Now let's look at the reality attested. That is to say, when I say the reality attested, I want us to understand that this human nature of Christ was a real human nature. It wasn't a pose. It wasn't a mask. It wasn't a lark that he went on for a while and then put aside forever. He became flesh. He became a human being. What happened at that time is true for all eternity. I'm just spoiler alert, looking fast forward, the Lord Jesus is still a human being and God. He still is one person in two natures. At the helm of the universe, steering all things towards God's end, is a human being. The man Christ Jesus. God and man, perfectly united in one person. 
So now let's look at the reality attested. Number one, attested by the circumstances of youth. What kind of a child was Jesus? What kind of childhood did Jesus have? Uh, Uninspired gospels tell fictional stories about Jesus giving life to clay pigeons and different little things like that. None of this is true. None of this happened. Read the reality in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, (coughs) 40, 51, 52. When eight days were fulfilled so that they could circumcise him, note that well, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Well, you don't circumcise a ghost and you don't circumcise God. You circumcise a human male. And that's what he was. He was a human Jewish male. And in keeping with the law of Moses, since as Galatians 4.4 says he was born of a woman, born under the law, he was circumcised. That's a human baby boy. One of the two sexes there are, I remind you, at no extra charge. And one of those sexes gets circumcised. Uh, So verse 40, now the child continued to grow and become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, don't pass over that too fast. I know you've read it a bunch of times. I don't know how deeply you've thought about it, but let's think about it for a moment. Of what nature could this verse be true? Could you say of God that God continued to grow and become strong and was filled with wisdom? No, you could not. God never learns anything. Many faulty Christian uh, systems in various areas have God learning things. You know, he, he elects us because he looks down history and he learns who's going to choose him. And when he sees who's going to choose him, he chooses them back. This is not true. God doesn't learn anything. God knows everything because God decrees everything. God doesn't increase in knowledge. But he increased in knowledge. He continued to grow and become strong and filled with wisdom. Why? Because he was a human boy. He wasn't born knowing the alphabet. He wasn't born knowing every language in man, uh, on earth. He wasn't born knowing EMC squared, you know, equals, equals MC squared. He wasn't born knowing these things. He had to learn them just like any other child. So he increased because he was a human being. And then verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. Could you say that of God? God continued in subjection to this man and this woman. No. But you sure could say that of a human being who is a child of parents, who is under the law of Moses, and is, who is obliged to obey the commandment, honor your father and your mother. And so as a human child, he did that. He submitted his will to their will because he had a human will. And he submitted that human will to his human father, his human, human mother. Verse 52 again. And Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And again, I just ask, could you say that of God? No, you could not. You could not say that God advanced in wisdom and stature. God didn't get taller. God doesn't get older. And he doesn't get smarter. God already knows everything in one eternal moment. He knows everything. But as a human being, he had to learn. And when he got up on Tuesday, he went to bed Tuesday night knowing more than he did when he got up because he was a human being and he had a human experience. There's just two things that were different about him, to be really simple. What what was one? Well, his father was his stepfather, his adoptive father, for one thing, because he didn't have a human father. 
And the other thing is, he never sinned. Think of how that went over with his brothers and sisters. Every time they wanted to blame something on Jesus, his mother went, yeah, right, right, he did that. I totally believe that. Bend over. <laughs> uh, he never did anything. He never did anything sinful. He was without sin. It is not, to, we say to err is human. That's not really true. To err is fallen human. It's human for all of us. But in Jesus' case, he was human, but he never sinned. So you see, what, what I want us to understand here is, in the incarnation, when the Word became flesh, his divine nature did not lose any of its divine attributes. And his human nature did not gain any divine attributes. His human nature was just human. His divine nature was just divine. And yet they were united in one person. Because if he had sinned, he could not be our Savior. If he were not a human being, he could not be our Savior. More on that later. So that's the circumstances of his childhood. Now let's talk about the circumstances of his life. Number two, circumstances of life. Well, we see his true humanity shown in Jesus' human limitations. His human limitations. Turn to John chapter 4 with me. Now, remind yourself, or allow me to remind you, that... The Gospel of John is the Gospel that begins... How does anyone remember the first words of the Gospel of John? Say nice and loud for me. Turns out a lot of people know those words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But in that same Gospel, reading about this Word, we read these words in verses 6 through 8. Jacob's well was there in Samaria where they went. So Jesus being, what? Wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. What do we read here about Jesus? He's worn out. He's thirsty. He's hungry. Are these things ever true of God? They're not ever true of God. He's never worn out. He's never thirsty. He's never hungry. Also, it's a great contradiction to say these things about Jesus. He must not be God, right? Well, his Godhood must not be human. I will say that. (laughs) But his Godhood is joined to a human nature. And so it is true to say that Jesus was thirsty and Jesus was tired. Obviously not in his divine nature, but obviously in his human nature because his human nature was real. It wasn't a pose. It wasn't an act. It wasn't just a fun thing to do like kids borrowing the parent's car. He really had become flesh. He'd become a human being. And this is written by the author who said that he's God. But that author also said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here indeed, he is flesh. Now turn to a a verse that's puzzled many, but really shouldn't if you understand these truths. Mark chapter 13. Really, if you you put it just in the frame of what we've been learning, it, it needn't puzzle anybody. It shouldn't puzzle anybody. Mark 13, 32, speaking of the future, the Lord Jesus says, 
But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. What does that mean? That's, that's a great panicky thing, isn't it? No, it's not. You know what else the sun probably didn't know? The distance to the, to the planet Neptune. Probably didn't know that as he stood there. He didn't know what the heat of the sun is as he stood there. He didn't know lots of things. And one of those things he didn't know, the man Jesus Christ standing there, was the exact date of his return. I dare say he knows it now. But as to his human nature, it's something that he didn't know. Because his human nature was not omniscient. Omniscience is an attribute of God, not of humanity. And his human nature had to learn. And it hadn't learned that at this point. So, that is just a true testimony to his genuine human limitations. His true humanity, letter B, is also shown in Jesus' human emotions. Now, we don't need to turn to John 11.35. It's the shortest verse in the English Bible. Anybody know that one? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's not the shortest verse in the Greek Bible, but it is the shortest verse in the English Bible. Jesus wept. Now, what's the scene? Jesus is at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Uh, what does Jesus see there? Well, he sees his, uh, Lazarus' sisters, who he dearly loved. They're weeping, hearts broken wondering why he hadn't been there to prevent this death. He sees others weeping as if they had no hope. He sees unbelief. He sees hopelessness. He sees broken heart. And he sees the great enemy, death. Death, which is the wages of what? Sin. And so he sees the great enemy that he's come to confront here. And confronted with all this, about to have a confrontation with this in raising Lazarus, the Gospels tell us that he bursts into tears. He begins weeping. He sheds genuine human tears of genuine human compassion. And so if we were to take the time, I mean, we've seen it as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, we'd see the full array of human emotions in Jesus. Uh, Anger, compassion, joy, everything you'd see in a healthy human being. And, but we see one more, and, and this one is very mysterious, and this is enough to make you just stop. In Matthew 26, turn there with me, please. Matthew 26, and, and the setting here is the eve of his betrayal and his arrest, and he's in the garden praying with his totally unreliable three closest friends who can't even stay awake. I mean, they should have, they should have stayed awake for sheer terror. I've said this before, but he says to them in verse 38, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Now, this is the person they'd seen face down a legion of demons without blinking. Stop a storm with a word. Face the authorities of the day without the slightest tremor or stammer. He'd never shown anything approaching fear or discouragement And he says this, that should have either terrified them into unconsciousness or made it impossible to sleep, and yet they sleep. But let's look at the words. Let's focus on that for a second. My soul is deeply grieved. It's just a very picturesque Greek word, perilupos. And I think of it as meaning my soul is wrapped in sadness. Have you ever felt that way? I certainly have. Well, Jesus did. I've never felt it to the depth he felt it, I'm sure. But his soul felt wrapped in sadness. 
to the point of death, so sad he could die, and the only thing keeping him is that it's not his time to die yet. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Did, did God ever have his soul deeply grieved to the point of death? This is a human emotion because he's a genuine human being. And then finally we read an application of this that's true and precious in Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15, the writer says, For we do not have, present tense, right now, right now sitting here, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things like we are. Period. Right? Oh, there's a couple more words. What are they? Without sin. Tempted in all things like as we are, yet without sin. Now let's back up. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Well, if his humanity was just a party mask, then he would not be able to sympathize with our weakness. Because he never would have experienced it. Not really. He would have just been a poser among human beings. But the word became flesh. It didn't appear to be flesh or pose as flesh. He took on a genuine human nature. And so he can sympathize. The Greek verb is sympathesi, from which we get sympathize. <laughs> but it means to feel with or to feel pain with. He can feel our pain. He can feel with us right now because he took humanity on himself forever. The humanity he took on, on himself in the virgin's womb, he still bears in glory. And so now this high priest is able to sympathize and is able to give us grace to help in time of need, he goes on to say. But now let's go back and see the true humanity of Jesus also shown and affirmed in the circumstances of death. Turn to John chapter 19, please. Number three, circumstances of death, John chapter 19. And we just step into the middle of a, a ghastly scene. The worst moment in our long history of horrible moments. Worst thing that ever happened is happening right here. The crucifixion of the Son of God. But we're just dipping in at this one moment. John 19.30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he, just, he loosened his tongue just enough to say one Greek word. To Telestai. It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. What does that mean? Well, he died. Has the deity ever died? No. Dying is not something God does, dying is something that humans do ever since Genesis 3, ever since the, the, the fruit and the sin. You know, we die because the wages of sin is death. And he dies. He gives up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, you know, they're all, oh gosh, and they're so precise and so religious and so perfect. They've got to make sure they do everything just right as they crucify the Messiah. The Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, and heaven knows they don't want to violate the Sabbath while they murder the Messiah asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So to keep... Well, anyway, you know what? Let's go on. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with them, to his left, to his right. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, 
They did not break his legs. But, the, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Now he's, he who is seen has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. Now I'll be very honest with you, as a young Christian, every time I read, read verse 35, that kind of seemed like overkill to me. I mean, why? obviously you're telling, this all, all, telling us that all this happened, why do you stop to say again, no, I, I just want to stop and stress the fact that I saw this and this actually happened and every word I'm telling you is absolutely true. Well, okay, I, I get it. They poked a spear in and blood and water came out. What's the big deal about that? Well, I tell my younger self, the big deal about that is he wants us to be absolutely clear Jesus died as dead as Julius Caesar, and he died a human being. He was as dead as dead can be. That spear went in, that spear came out, and there it is. He is clearly dead. Everybody there knows he's dead. Because if we don't understand that Jesus physically, literally died, the gospel doesn't happen, you see. So it is just as important to know that he died literally, physically, as a human being, as it is to know that he rose from the dead because the resurrection doesn't mean anything if he didn't die first. So, yeah. And besides that, John was seeing the incursion of false teaching that denied the literal humanity of Jesus, that denied that he came in the flesh. So he wants everybody to know, I was there, I saw it. He was in the flesh. He died in the flesh. He was dead. And this is his humanity, his literal humanity without which there is no atonement, his literal, physical, utter death. And without that, there's no resurrection. Without that, there's no gospel. Without that, there's no hope. So Jesus suffered as a human and he died as a human. That is, we've seen the prophetical background. We've seen the historical foreground. Now let's look at the theological high ground, which is to say, let's talk about the truth that all these historical events point us to and reveal to us. What is the theological high ground? Uh, Letter A, first of all, the glory of the incarnation. The glory of the incarnation. And we just see that very briefly in John 1.14. I'll just remind you of that. John 1.14 is where the apostles said, Having said, the Word was God, he says now, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he became flesh. What does that mean? It means he became a a true human being. It means that he did not pretend to be flesh. He became flesh. He didn't just appear to be flesh. He became flesh. At the same time, we must understand when he says that the Word became flesh, he's not saying that the the Word turned into flesh, like he stopped being God and became a man instead. Why do we know that that's impossible? Because God doesn't change. And and if you're something that can ever stop being God, you never were God. (laughs) And so to say that he's God is to say that he's always God or he's not God. You can't become God. You can't stop being God. So still being God, he became flesh. He took on an actual, literal, true human nature, a full human nature, not mixed, not blurred, not blended, a true human nature, 
all of its human attributes intact. That's the glory briefly. But a bit more fully, turn to Philippians 2, which we just read earlier. But turn there with me, please. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. Very deep passage, but let me just uh, try to lift out a few things particularly for you. Now here in urging us to be like Christ, he gets, and to have the mind of Christ, he gets into the mind of Christ, the way Jesus thought. Verse 5, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now in verse 6, of Christ Jesus, he says, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So, Uh, We might think of this as status one. This is the first status of Christ that we encounter. Although existing in the form of God. Now, he uses a word morphe, a Greek word morphe, meaning form. And the idea of that is an an outward expression of an inward reality. In other words, if, if if you see it, then you see what it is. Now, no man can see God. But what I believe is Paul is saying is that through eternity, if you had seen God the Son, if you'd had the eyes to see Him, all you would have seen was God. You simply would have seen the glory of God. So existing in the form of God, God and nothing but God, he didn't regard that as something selfishly to cling to himself. To remain in that form with no, with no further action, no Status two is brought to us in verse seven, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Now, I tell you, much, much ink has been spilled to discuss what it means to say that he emptied himself. And and a great deal of it is completely wrong-headed because it asks the question of what did he empty himself? Did he empty himself of his divine attributes? Well, then that runs into the problem of God can't stop being God. And God can't stop having some of his attributes because that's, who, that's what he is. So if he stops having some of his attributes, well, he's not God anymore. So it can't be that. Did he empty himself as the use of his attributes? Did he empty himself of this, that, and the other thing? But as I say, that's all wrong-headed because Paul doesn't say he emptied himself of anything. If he had, there's another Greek word he could have used that means to pour out, that he poured something out of himself. He didn't use that. He uses a word, the idea is he emptied himself. He made himself of no account. And and it's explained in the next two participles. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of man. So in other words, how he emptied himself was in the incarnation. This was subtraction by addition. What, how he emptied himself was taking on himself our finite, weak, created nature. And so now, whereas in eternity past, if you'd had the eyes to see God the Son, you'd have seen nothing but God. But he's, as he's walking around in Nazareth, what are people saying? It's that guy. Just seeing a Jewish guy. They're just seeing a Jewish guy who, as we read in the next words, uh, has, uh, well, he's taken the form of a slave. He's been made in the likeness of men. He's in appearance as a man. In other words, you look at him and you see a man, and and that's legit because he is a man. That's just not the whole story. Oh, but you remember there was this time when there was a brief peak. When was that? 
Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, and interestingly, the Greek verb used is metamorpho. So his morphe was changed for a second there. Up to that second, all they see when they look at him is they see this guy, this Jewish guy. But for a moment, what did they see? Well, not much, right? Because it was brighter than the light of the sun. And what was that? Well, that was a peak of his divinity, of his divine glory. But just a peak, or he'd have killed them. So he, he wrapped it back up, and there was the hiding of his glory. Uh, so, verse 8 goes on, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So there's the two big verbs. He emptied himself, he humbled himself. Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And do you see there, there is a part of the reason for the incarnation. If God were to save his elect, death would need to occur for them. Redemptive death, atoning death, propitiatory death, and that death had to be of a human being because the sin was of a human being. We'll study this more when we study the doctrine of the atonement. But, but so why did God become a man? to be able to do this. God could not humble himself to the point of death on the cross as God because God doesn't die. God doesn't hang on a cross. God creates the wood from which cross is made, but he doesn't hang from it. But to do that, he had to take on a human nature and a human body. A perfectly righteous human nature. Perfectly righteous human body. But that's, that's the glory of it. He didn't cling to this existence, but he, he humbled, he emptied himself by taking on human nature that he might humble himself to die the death on the cross for God's elect and win their salvation, that they might be saved and redeemed. Now, that's the glory of the incarnation. So we just, we just end with some reflections. Obviously, this is something that we could, we could, we could and will study <laughs> at greater length. But just uh, first of all, we need to take away, we need to get firmly that in the incarnation, God the Son took to himself a human nature. The Father didn't. It's wrong to say, Father, thank you for dying for us on the cross. He didn't. Or to say, Holy Spirit, thank you for dying for us on the cross. He didn't. God the Son did. In the incarnation, God the Son took to himself a human nature, losing, compromising none of the attributes of either nature. His humanity was perfectly human. His deity was perfectly God. And yet Jesus remained one person, not two persons. Jesus never spoke of himself as we, you know, my divine nature in me. Never talked that way. It's just one person. And Scripture only speaks of one person. Scripture says that Jesus says, I thirst. Who said that? The person of Jesus. How did he thirst? in his human nature. But Scripture also says, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Who is? Jesus is. How is he? In his human nature? In his divine nature. But just one person. Just one Jesus. So this is very important, and I I make it at least my ambition that everyone I have the privilege of teaching, that none of them, none of you will ever say that Jesus is half God and half man. Please don't think that. 
please don't say that. He's not half God and half man. He's fully God and fully man. He's not part God, part man. He's not a demigod. He's not a blend of the two. He's not a mixture of the two. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. One person with two natures, unmixed, uncompromised, unblurred, and purely what it is forever. His humanity is forever. His deity is forever. United in one amazing, unequaled person. And so we close letter A, I'm sorry, yeah, letter B, with looking at A, goal of the incarnation. Now that, you can underline that A, or maybe I did for you, but you could circle it, you could star it, you could put arrows at it. This is not the whole purpose, but this is A, goal of the incarnation. And that Hebrews, that is Hebrews 2.14, which I read at the start of the service, and so we come back to that to conclude with Hebrews 2.14. Therefore, since the children, that's us the elect, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In order to accomplish this atonement, this redemption, he had to take on flesh and blood, a literal, physical, human nature. And where does that take us to? It takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where we started. We were told that it was the seed of the woman who would defeat the devil. And he had to be born as a human being, but he would be God in human flesh. A human being brought sin into the world. A human being must address sin. Though he must be truly human, he can't be involved in sin himself or he's part of the problem. He must be free of sin, and so he was. But he must also be of infinite worth so as to save a countless number of God's people. And so he is because he's God incarnate. So the Father sent his Son, and the Son came to win salvation for us, and then he would send the Holy Spirit to apply that to us. So, in close, we began by asking, who is this man? And now we can answer the question. Jesus is fully human, and because he's fully human, he speaks our language. Because he's fully human, he understands our sorrows, our weaknesses as one of us. Because he's fully human, he is one of us, except for sin. And because he's fully human, Jesus brings God to us, and he brings us to God in his nature. But also Jesus is fully God, and because he's fully God, he reveals God to us perfectly. And because he's fully God, he can do what only God can do. He is fully God and fully man in one utterly unique person. And so as fully God and fully man, he reconciles us to God. As fully God and fully man, he keeps us reconciled. As fully God and fully man, he is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Because he is fully man and fully God, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the bread of life. He's the door. He's our Savior. He alone. And this is who Jesus truly is. So Jesus asked his, asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Jesus asks you and me today, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am?
Well, if you walked in with a Jesus who's not fully God and fully man, then you walked in with a make-believe Jesus, a Jesus who never lived and a Jesus who can never save. The only Jesus who, can, who lives and can save is the Jesus who is fully God and fully man. And if you've not, I urge you to call on him, trust in him, come to him, for he alone saves. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious truth that Scripture reveals for us and to us, the truth that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He emptied himself, he humbled himself, that he might die the death on the cross. And we look to the cross and what Jesus accomplished there, and him alone for salvation, but a glorious and full salvation because he fully succeeded in what he came to do. And he ever lives to save to the uttermost all who draw near to you through him. So again, I pray anyone who's come in, child, adult, younger, older, who's not known the Lord Jesus, I pray that your gracious spirit will give sight to those eyes, life to that heart, and bring that one to saving faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.